Order. The Prime Minister. What a good idea. I move that we take the Speaker's words down. Mr. President, catch this. The point of order is sustained. I rise today to begin to filibuster America and reach for the stars. We are human together. The best in America. I might have got here on my own. Howdy, welcome back to This Is News. I'm Reem, and I am not joined by Jack this week, as we have a special guest on the program. He is the Democratic State Representative for House District 37, the state's southernmost district, representing the coastal portion of Cameron County. Previously, he served on the Commissioner's Court of Cameron County and is a practicing attorney. Representative Dominguez, welcome on the show. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. So I want to start with just discussing one of your more notable pieces of legislation that's gotten a good bit of press coverage, including a Texas Tribune article that we'll throw in the show notes. House Bill 1802, which calls for a clinical study on using, I'm going to mispronounce this, psilocybin? Psilocybin. Psilocybin to treat PTSD in veterans. Where did the idea for this bill come from? Uh, you know, I, I've been studying the use of psychedelics uh, by research universities to try to treat very different types of mental illnesses for a number of years now. Uh, the more recent research coming out of the United Kingdom, in particular Ireland and Israel, to treat PTSD in inpatients there made me think uh, what type of research is going on in the United States. Turns out there is no research being done in the United States using psilocybin. Okay. And the bill calls for Baylor College of Medicine to do the research. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, Baylor is one of the leading universities in the state of Texas in doing research on psychedelics. It is actually one of the leading institutions in the country on the, the research of different psychedelics to treat different types of mental illness, such as depression, uh, PTSD is one, and a number of anxiety. Uh, so it, it's, it's a far expanding area, and Baylor is one of the best places to go. So about the bill itself and kind of how it's been navigating through this legislative process, it's received quite impressive bipartisan support across the ideological gap with Representatives Zwiener and Kane, both saying that they supported in the journal. And former Governor Rick Perry, of course, did a press conference down at the Capitol in support of it. How did this bill get such broad support from the members of the House? Well, you know, I, I want to say it was some some good old fashioned gumshoes being out there talking to people, uh, almost like a cold caller saying, hey, I have this uh, fantastic bill. Would you like to listen to it? And uh, typically after five minutes, uh, they're either very, very intrigued or still a bit quizzical. But nobody was telling me, no, I am not going to support this. Uh, they might say, you know, I, I need a little more research. This is certainly not uh, my cup of tea. You know, for a couple of sessions now, we've been looking at the use of medical cannabis to treat different types of mental illness, uh, stress, perhaps uh, expanding the, the permissive use for, for certain groups, such as uh, people that have autism. Uh, for example, this year, I believe there's a bill to expand the use of medical cannabis for veterans who have PTSD. Uh, and, and I think that's fantastic. I, I think it's, yeah. a, it's a great way for this state to expand and really look at potential treatments for different mental illnesses. However, this one takes an, an entirely different approach. You know, Medical cannabis is a psychotropic, uh, which will be used to treat the symptoms of different types of mental illness. Uh, very useful for many different conditions. In my case, uh, I'm looking to find a better treatment for a veteran demographic that is the most likely to commit suicide. So given that they're in a crisis mode now, we lose about 20 veterans every day nationwide. That's about 6,000 per year. Texas has one of the largest veteran populations in the entire country. So if if you go back to 2001, when the the, the first Persian Gulf War uh, began in the modern era, that's about 20 years ago. Since then, we have lost 
nationwide 114,000 veterans to suicide on our shores. Yeah. And so I just want to ask real quick about former Governor Perry, of course, after he was Secretary of Energy, he kind of faded into the background on a lot of things. This has kind of been, I think, his biggest push this legislative session in terms of policy that he's wanted to see change in the state. Where did his support for this legislation come from? Well, you know what? There was this Friday. I get a message uh, from a, a mutual friend who says, uh, Governor Perry is interested in one of your bills. Uh, would you be able to meet with him or have a conversation over Zoom with him? And since it was at the time a number I did not recognize, I certainly thought it was a prank. Um, but as we continued to dis- <laughs> to discuss it, no, okay, I, we 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 do know each other. We spoke on the phone and we set up a Zoom the following Monday. Yeah. And as it turns out, uh, former Governor Perry uh, has a wealth of knowledge on this topic, specifically psychedelics being used for veterans that have PTSD. It, I was impressed. I was at one point speechless. Uh, not only at the breadth of knowledge that he has on this topic, uh, but his his own initial uh, admissions that he was uh, suspicious of this type of treatment. Uh, certainly not a giant advocate in, in his legislative history for any kind of uh, Schedule One controlled substance being legalized. So when he told me he was willing to do whatever it took to work on this bill, uh, I was flattered, of course, but also very emboldened to keep pushing this legislation. And what, as it turns out, when he made it into town to, to help on this bill, he actually joined us in a press conference with a number of uh, special operatives uh, who themselves were the Navy SEALs, Green Berets, who had gone through similar treatment. And, and he put himself out there. And in a quiet moment, he says, I haven't been to Austin in five years. Right. This is the first time I've come back. And this is the only bill that he is pushing. Yeah. That speaks volumes That's, to how important this is and, and how good of a bill this is to get that type of support. Let's talk about some of those special ops who were at that press conference and who I'm sure you've worked with as we've been as your office has been pushing forward this bill. Is there a particular story from a veteran who would be helped by this kind of legislation that's really stuck with you throughout this uh, this session? Oh, well, you know, I, I can share the, the story of one of the veterans, okay. which I believe he'll have a similar history to many other veterans, many of our soldiers. Uh, so he is a Navy SEAL, uh, you know, a very tough individual, uh, tall, muscular, strong in every sense of, of the definition by American standards and uh, not afraid to go headfirst into a fight. A uh, part of his job description uh, as being a member of SEAL Team 6 was to be the person to set the explosives to blow up a door, blow up a wall, to mm-hmm. be able to to break in. Well, part of what happens when you have these detonation devices is despite your best efforts, that person might still suffer some trauma due to the concussive force and how it affects the brain. So that's one thing that a number of our veterans have suffered. You can imagine different explosions near them, uh, improvised explosive devices, blowing up their vehicles. And then there's the second aspect, what you do as an as a soldier and what you witness, whether it's uh, your friends next to you suffering injuries and or casualties. Uh, that I think is universal amongst most of our soldiers that would come back with PTSD. And his story is not unique. He was uh, constantly deployed for 13 years. And when he came back, he had a very difficult time adjusting. Uh, His family was having a hard time with him. He wasn't able to relate, communicate, express what he was feeling because he was suppressing his emotions, uh, expressing his concerns for for life and, and, and 
what is he supposed to do now? So the common story among many of the veterans is that while they were deployed, they still had all these feelings, but because they're focused on the mission, they're not dealing with them. Right. So by compartmentalizing things that may have been a little bit worse because it escaped treatment early on. So it, it came to the point where he felt he was going to lose his marriage, uh, lose any hope of a career and likely lose his own life if he didn't go and get help. And with the help of his wife, he was able to go to Mexico. They raised money. They received psychedelic treatment there. He said the experience was incredibly awful, stressful, but at the end, very relieving. And now he's able to move on with his life. He is getting his MBA from USC. Go Trojans. He he is very active. He's smiling. Yeah. Uh, he's very engaged. And he is making it his life mission to help other veterans that are going through something similar. And, and while it's it's a very compelling story, the part that sticks with me is why do we have to have our veterans leave our country to go get treatment? Right. And it's, that's why we need something like 1802. Let's talk about where 1802 is now in the process. Earlier this week, the Senate acknowledged receipt of the bill. It's yet to be referred to the committee. Are you hopeful that that situation is going to change in the next couple of weeks? Yes. My understanding is that earlier today, the Senate announced that they were going to refer 700 House bills <laughs> uh, to Senate committees. Uh, you know, this is that time of year where uh, the different houses uh, are finishing the, the end of their own original bills and, and now must accept and discuss uh, the other chamber's bills. Uh, it, it's a dance we do every two years. Right. Uh, I'm not saying it's the most efficient or Open the worst, the <laughs> uh, but it, it is what it is. Uh, our, our Senate sponsor has been waiting uh, eagerly for this bill to now be referred. I believe now it will be ready to be set for a hearing. Our, our witnesses are, are ready. They're amazing witnesses that will, yeah. that will, People will leave that hearing probably without a dry eye. Their testimony is compelling. Uh, it's accurate. And it's something that I believe every policymaker in the country should listen to. Let's pivot just a little bit to your previous experience as county commissioner and a county prosecutor. It's extensive experience in local county government that not everyone in this building necessarily has. How has that local government experience helped you be able to be more effective in the Texas House? You know, the, the, the biggest difference I'd say between being on a county commission as opposed to being here is a, a commissioner's court has only five members uh, statewide. So there will always be a county judge and one county commissioner for each of the four precincts that the, the, the county is divided into. So it, it's important to be able to find at least two friends for any con- any position that you have on, on a, on a measure. My first three years uh, of being a county commissioner, my county judge was Carlos Costco's. Uh, this was right before he was appointed to be the secretary of state of right. Texas. And uh, secretary Costco's is a Republican. Yep. And largely we had, we sat next to each other. I was the, the county judge pro tem. So we would talk frequently about, things that were before us, action the county needed to take, and and maybe, you know, some some budget tightening measures. So I got to see how he worked, how he thought. And extrapolating from that, I was able to have an insight of what it would be like here at the house. Now, convincing two people is very different than having to convince <laughs> 75 others. Right. Uh, it's a little bit more work. Uh, but at the same time, having that county government experience, you understand how budgets work, uh, what the consequences are of state action. So having that knowledge, I can apply that up here to say, well, listen, this policy sounds great. This is what it's going to have 
happen in, in the local communities. So you need to always be ready for the unanticipated consequences. Uh, we see that that was a mistake that California made a couple of years ago when they passed a major bail reform measure that provided no extra funding for counties to be able to enforce the new changes that, that the state wanted. Yeah. So I, I think it's very important that all our policymakers are diligent and, and stay in contact with their local governments back home because you certainly don't want that conflict when you get back home and you're not in session. Right. I want to talk a bit more about bipartisan relationships real quick because in the Texas House and Senate for that matter, most bills are not party line bills. Um, a lot of bills get passed with broad bipartisan support, including HB 1802. So how has the culture of our legislature remained cooperative when up in D.C. we see bipartisanship as a rare phenomenon, yet down here it seems relatively common? This is the strange thing because I would say that both the state house and the the, the house of representatives up in, in D.C. each had the likelihood of flipping from majority party uh, any given two years. Right. And And – in the past couple decades, certainly the the House of Representatives in in Washington has changed hands more often than the one in Texas. However, the one in Texas has made a deliberative effort to remain a bipartisan body, where we have even if the speaker is a Republican, the speaker will appoint Democrats to chair important committees. This year, we had uh, Harold Dutton as a chair of the Public Education Committee, and that's. A huge that that is and it goes to show that the speaker uh, and his team try to be representative not just of the other party but they do take into account um, ethnicity race uh, geographic representation and that's very important so that you don't have say in the natural resources committee everybody that lives in the hill country no you have also have somebody from south texas you have somebody from from southeast texas somebody from el paso because they all have different needs and we should all work together and i think the idea here is good policy will be good policy regardless of which party member produces it now that being said there are occasional outliers that decide that they don't want to be lumped in uh, with all the kumbaya feeling and they'll uh, vote the other way not because they they have a strong feeling about any particular bill they just want to show that they're independent uh, or, or maybe more conservative or more liberal yeah. on any particular issue well we don't have to name names so <laughs> thank you <laughs> uh, we'll we'll let everybody else do that for us on twitter um you serve on three t- committees, appropriations, environmental regulation, and local and consent calendars, the latter of which you are vice chair of. Have there been any insights you've gained from these three committees that our listeners might appreciate knowing about the legislative process here in Texas? The legislative process is a very deliberate one. It's one thing to file a bill and see that that bill go completely unchanged in its final form when it reaches the governor's desk. Uh, rather, you, people must think of a bill as a starting point. Uh, with one or two major ideas. And oftentimes that bill will go through committee and upon hearing testimony and criticism from people that maybe disagree with the bill or have concerns about the bill, that allows time for that bill to be shaped to be a a much better bill uh, and if possible, a perfect bill. Uh, And I think that's important because I think our committee structure allows fair debate it's an open system. And this year, for the first time, we allowed people to participate remotely via Zoom, which we have never done before. But it allowed testimony from different parts of the state for people that were unable to travel or did not feel safe to travel. And that's a first. 
and when we have these different competing ideas, we can certainly shape our bills to be better. And I think that allows input from both parties because once we're in that room, for example, when I'm acting as the vice chair for environmental regulations, my goal is to make sure that the policies that we're putting out take into account all different opinions and no one position is being steamrolled. And there's certainly a lot of uh, inner office discussion on bills, uh, how can a bill become better, which member is very upset with the bill, uh, and reaching out to them so that in the end, we hope to have everybody on the same page. Most people don't realize that the vast majority of bills that we pass will be fairly, fairly, if not unanimous, very close to it. I want to pivot a bit to House District 37 in particular. It's the only district that has all five modes of transportation in it, road, rail, air, sea, and space, which comes from SpaceX's Brownsville launch facility. Have you been able to tour the facility? Yeah, you know, I... I I've been there since it was uh, just a mound of dirt uh, to its current incarnation where it's a number of uh, portable warehouses that have just activity. And each one, they're, they're creating structures there by hand. And it's an impressive thing to watch. I've had a chance to interview some of their technicians and I'm happy to find out that many are from the area. Uh, yeah. Many who have been uh, tradespeople, typically in welding, at other locations throughout the state or the country, and they decided to move home so that they could work there and be close to home, which I think is a, it's a fantastic opportunity for, uh, so we don't lose talent. We can keep families unified. It's not unusual because of the, uh, the general economic situation in South Texas where we have a high unemployment rate. Typically, we've been just under double the unemployment rate of the state. And when you you think about that and you have somebody that is being offered a job, say, on an oil platform or in Houston or in Michigan, and they want to go and work there and send money back home to their family, while that's well-intentioned, I think the family would also like to have that parent there at home to help maybe raise raise their children. So SpaceX has created many economic opportunities for people back home. At the same time, it makes them feel special because they can – they can tell their friends, well, I work at SpaceX. And I think it's always great for their their children who are at school. And when people ask, well, what does your, your parent do? Like, my, my dad helps build rockets. Yeah. Let's talk about those rockets. What SpaceX project are you most excited about? You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. The, the, the current big project is going to be uh, the launching of an eventual aircraft to the moon and to Mars. And I grew up at a time where I, I love rockets. I, I knew about Neil Armstrong. So knowing that history and, and watching it in, in the county of my birth, I think it's, it's fantastic. I think it will stimulate uh, many young minds and encourage them to go into uh, different fields such as science and technology because now they can see it for themselves that this is a very real opportunity for them. But my personal favorite thing that I wish SpaceX would do is launch more of their Starlink satellites from the area. They currently launch from somewhere else, but the reason why I say that is during the winter storm and during the COVID pandemic, we saw a number of homes in South Texas that are not wired into the grid to receive internet. And I really view internet in many ways as a utility now. It, right. You need it for everything. It also allows freedom for people that are unable to leave their home to be, become a little bit more educated, to actually take college courses online or, or, or learn other skills. It's also a great way, because of the pandemic, we learned for families to stay in touch. 
uh, being able to FaceTime uh, your grandparents and show them the, the birth of your child. Well, maybe not the birth itself, but maybe the child when right. they're very young. <laughs> uh, I think it keeps families connected, and that's an important thing. So if we can do anything to increase the competition, uh, to have a few more Internet providers down there, I think that helps South Texas. And it also would probably help our neighbors to the south of Mexico. Well, I was about to say, I believe the Senate earlier today passed the rural broadband bill that the House had passed. So I, I think it's a fantastic start, and uh, it'll certainly help my community and, as for, and many other parts of the state. Right. But at the same time, it won't be immediate, uh, whereas I think the satellites could probably start right away. But anyway, I, no, in, of in course, any case, yeah. I, I would love to see the rockets uh, fly. Uh, I think it's it's fantastic. It, it's exciting. I'm very, I, I applaud them for winning the contract with NASA. Um, I, I tease my my counterpart Eddie Morales, who has a competing uh, spaceship company in, in his district, and I, I, I'm not teasing him because I'm sure they'll do amazing things yeah. as well. But we're there now, and uh, Browns was where it's at. I was about to say you may get one over Representative Dennis Paul, who has Johnson Space Center in his district as well. So, well, you know, it, I I think I compete with him, and uh, you know, Doc Anderson, who has the the, the facility over there nearby Waco in McGregor. Right. So uh, I, I think we're doing all right. And uh, it, it's a very neat facility. I, I invite people to come down and see. Uh, the fantastic thing is if you drive down from Brownsville to Boca Chica Beach on the road, the state road there, you will be probably within 50 to 100 feet of the launch pad. And while you won't be there when it's launching, you can certainly see it and talk about having the best Instagram pictures <laughs> of all of your friends. So come on down to South Texas. You'll love it. Well, South Padre Island is also in the district, so it's, it's, it's kind right. of a... I don't think I have to advertise that. No, I don't they, think you I do. I think college students do that all the time for me. Being a college student, we have a couple aspiring lawyers who listen to the show, myself included. What's one piece of your advice, of advice from your legal career as a prosecutor and a private attorney that you would give to those who may want to get into that field? Find out where you want to live before you begin your law practice. Yeah. And the reason why I say that is... It's very easy to stay in one community for a very, very long time. It's very hard to leave your clients, uh, both because you develop an attachment to them, but also because they like you and they'll probably offer you lots of money to stay. So make <laughs> sure that you know where you want to live. If your plan is to, to live in uh, Spokane, Washington, you know know that ahead of time and just do it. Just, just yeah. pull the bandaid off. All right. This is the last one. I am going to ask you to name a name in this one. So oh get ready. If anyone follows any house members on Twitter, they probably know that y'all are a bit obsessed with making salsa. A two-parter here. What makes a great salsa? And what member other than you has the best salsa? I'd say probably the member that that makes a decent salsa is Christina Morales out of Harris County. Okay. Uh, She has a pretty good salsa, and I think it's better than Eddie Morales' is. It's not as good as mine. Okay. (laughs) Because I'll tell you what the real secret to making great salsa is. Roast your ingredients. And that involves time, which a lot of folks don't want to do. They want to just throw in the blender, you know, their Vitamix, try to get heated up. No, 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 no. Take your time. Slow roast your tomatoes, your serranos, uh, your green onions. Uh, Don't be afraid to add a little extra salt and lime. You'd be surprised what a little bit of acid can do to a wonderful salsa. So by all means, uh, be adventurous. You could add some cotija cheese. You want to get a different kind of flavor to it. Uh, and get some good chips. Don't get those flimsy <laughs> ones. Get some good hearty chips that can stand up to the sauce. That's all I've got. Thank you so much for coming on the program. It's been a pleasure, Representative Dominguez. And for our listeners, we'll be back with a normal episode next week. Thanks Thank so you much. I, I appreciate it. 